we're self-medicating troublesome feelings and emotions that we never worked through. That's why most people turn to addiction is because of feelings. It has very little to do with the actual drinking, drugging. It's the escape and you know, we like the effect of not feeling our feelings that are painful. This is a fit mess with Zach and Jeremy. Hello and welcome to the fit mess. I am Jeremy and he is Zach. What's up everyone. Thank you for listening to the show and subscribing on uh, iTunes or, or uh, Google or wherever you get your podcast. We appreciate you being there and listening to the show. Uh, the show that we have for you today came together a little backwards uh, for us. A lot of times we sort of pursue different biohacks, different things that we can do to, you know, optimize our health, uh, improve our mental clarity, whatever the thing is that that we're into. We'll find a book and go, oh, that, uh, you know, this really plays into what I'm trying to do right now. We get excited about it. We contact the author. They come on the show. We share the information with you. Uh, In this case, uh, it, it's sort of working backwards where we were pitched this uh, this conversation and we're happy to talk about it. It, it involves uh, basically alcoholism and, and uh, alcohol abuse. And I wasn't sure what to expect, but the book was fantastic. Um, it really I, I shared with the author before we started recording that uh, in a lot of ways it was triggering for me because it, it just it like unlocked all these sort of crazy dark memories I had as a kid. Uh, growing up in a house that uh, experienced alcoholism. So we talked to the author, and her name is uh, Lisa Boucher. She's a registered nurse, and she's been uh, working with uh, primarily women who struggle with alcoholism for the better part of a, of a few decades. And the interview was great. I, I, and you'll, you'll, we'll play it here for you in just a little bit. It's, it's a very interesting conversation, uh, very uh, vulnerable, uh, I think, on her part and mine. Her story is, is fascinating in how she came into this line of work. But even... Zach, you and I were trying to figure out, like, what's our topic for this show? We we put it on the calendar. Let's set it up. Let's talk. And it wasn't until I got into editing the show uh, or the, the interview just a couple of hours ago that even more about what I'm going through right now was revealed to me. Um, I've, I've really ramped up my uh, physical exercise in the last few weeks. I've been dealing with a lot of stress. There's a lot of just projects that are sort of floating in the back of my head. Um, friends that are sick, battling cancer, some of them losing, um, just a, a lot of stuff that is just, it's draining. And I haven't been able to figure out how to cope with it. And so I keep saying to myself, or, or I keep hearing a voice that's telling me, you know, have a beer, you know, do, do something like, you know, default to something quick and easy, something simple. And I'm pushing back against that by going to the gym more, biking more, like just trying to be as physical as I can to work through this stuff. And it really wasn't until I was listening to the interview today that I realized that so much of that is me resisting what I think is uh, an addictive nature or relationship with uh, with alcohol. And so it just it's it's interesting how these things come together for me. And maybe it's not a coincidence. Maybe it's that when when I'm forced to take a minute and reflect and and really focus on where am I at, you know, body scan, whatever, like really looking at what's going on in my head, what's going on with my body, a lot of things are revealed to me. But so often until I'm forced to do that, I don't. And then it all, the, the overwhelm builds up 
and it shuts me down. And so that's mm-hmm. sort of where I've been. And, and, uh, so it's, it's just so interesting to me how, how this interview presented itself to be available to, for me to listen to today, to hear myself, uh, and, and be able to compare where I am mentally now to where I was a few weeks ago when we did the interview. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, important to note at this point in the show that you don't drink anymore neither do i that's a good point for for new listeners we've both been sober. you've been sober longer than i you've been what like three years uh i think it's actually coming up on four okay and i'm i'll yeah. be i'll be uh two years on january 1st and and we should also add uh, I, you know, I don't want to speak for you. I don't think of either of us as alcoholics. I don't think either of us have a problem with it. We just made a decision that it it wasn't benefiting our lives to continue drinking. Yeah. I don't think, uh, you know, in hindsight and looking back, I certainly could see myself developing a problem, a serious problem in the way in my relationship with alcohol. Um, I mean, I, I certainly enjoyed a beer most every night. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think my big problem was like, once I got started, I didn't really have a good off switch. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would, you know, I'd blow through a six pack if I started drinking easily without any thought to it. And I, you know, I could control it to a certain extent, but you know, while I didn't have a huge problem, I, I, I definitely see it. It could have developed into something else for sure. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm the same. And, uh, you know, I share, you'll hear in the interview, I, I mentioned that, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of person that I would have one, which would make it easier to have three, which would make it easier to have six. Um, yep. Just because your ability to clearly make a healthy decision is severely diminished the more that you drink. And it just seems like, hey, it's just fun. It's just a drink. Who cares? That being said, we are in the midst of the holidays. We're in the midst of the two and a half uh, weeks of the most darkness and and rain, particularly here in the Northwest, um, where all you want to do is escape. You want to hide. You want to get away from everything. And and booze is a quick and easy way to do that. And as I'm coming up on my two-year anniversary, I've been wrestling with, you know, could I now, having shown that I can be completely sober for all this time, can I now be the kind of person that decides, hey, I'm going to have a glass of wine with dinner and maybe that's the only one I have all week or month or year or ever. Mm-hmm. But even that thought process, like I think people that have a healthy relationship with alcohol don't think about that. They just go and have yep. a glass of wine with dinner and that's that. I'm thinking yep. through, could I even possibly have one or two and just have that be... And so, again, and and maybe I've shared that in the past, but again, I think that is the biggest red flag for me uh, in terms of whether or not I should go down that road. Because in other areas of my life, you know, I'm I'm not strong enough, particularly when it comes to crappy food. Yeah, I, I call that the cookie test for myself. Whenever I do have that thought of, you know, hey, could I do this? I mean, I've I've definitely had a couple of benders in my day, but whenever I have that thought of could I just have one? I'll, I'll go get a, there's a, there's a cookie vendor here in the Northeast called Fryhoffers and they are delicious. And I'll go get a box <laughs> of them and I'll try to eat just one <laughs> and, it, and I fail. And it's in my, that's my personality. I have a, this is my wife's speech is I have a, I have an addictive personality where if I'm going to do something, 
I'm going to do it all the way. Right. Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, right? If I'm going to exercise, I'm going to go hard. If I'm going to drink, I'm going to go hard. I mean, it's, you know, I, I started doing yoga, just a little bit of yoga. And I took that to the most extreme <laughs> level possible, right? It's, that's just my personality. Whatever I do, I want to be an expert. I want to go all the way. I want, I want it to be everything. I, I have trouble with moderation. So I use the cookie test. Whenever I have that thought, I go get a box of cookies. If I can have one, I, I know I'm okay and I could probably do it, but I never can just have one. Well, look at it this way. You started out just going to yoga, you know, lightly and became a yoga instructor. You haven't become a baker yet. So maybe there is a, maybe there is a limit for you. Maybe there is an off switch somewhere. Yeah. I don't like baking. I'm a really <laughs> wow. good cook. I can make a lot of really good dishes. Uh -huh. um, I think you have been a guest at some of our parties out in Seattle where I've made food for people and it's generally enjoyable, but baking is, um, there's too much science involved there. Like yeah. it's just, it, you know, I can, it, when you're, when you're cooking something and it comes out crappy, you just mix it all together, put some salt on it and it's good. Right. Like baking, if you get the chem, the, the chemistry wrong, like the cake doesn't rise. I don't, I don't know. Happens, I don't know what so. you're talking about. You, you take the tube, you cut the tube open, <laughs> you slice it up, you set it on a pan, bake it for like 12 minutes and you eat a, yeah. a, about a dozen cookies. What, what's the problem here? Pretty, that sounds perfect. It's pretty simple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I. but I completely agree. For me, it's, uh, you know, I work in, a, in an open office space and, you know, it's somebody's birthday every other flipping day. Fortunately, I'm not a big cake guy, but cookies and other crap show up and there's just some days when, when I'm just powerless. Like, I'll walk by it 10, 12, 13 times, that 14th time. The, fine. I'll eat it. Fine. I can't. I can't stop anymore i'm just gonna do this and be okay with it yeah um, so and it's the willpower it is the willpower that is that is the thing but I, I mean for both of us we neither one of us drink alcohol anymore but we do enjoy beer we do very much enjoy beer especially non-alcoholic beer like like that yeah. made by bravest brewing company uh yeah <laughs> the sponsor I, of this show uh, i'm you, actually having one right now are you really are you having the the ipa I do. I've got an IPA cracked uh, open. I've I've been out for a while, so I gotta I gotta get some more. Uh, anyways, you can get some more at our website, uh, thefitmess.com. There's a link. Click on that. Use the promo code fitmess10 and uh, get yourself some delicious non-alcoholic beer and uh, and and drink guilt-free. That's what I always say. Uh, speaking of drinking and, and alcoholism, uh, our guest uh, Lisa Boucher, a registered nurse, she wrote the book "Raising the Bottom: Making Mindful Choices in a Drinking Culture." Again. This is something I think that is on a lot of people's minds. Uh, as evidence, uh, our blogger, uh, the Be Well Mama, submit, her submission was about mommy drinking culture. So, I mean, this and it's a great read. You should check it out also at, at our website, thefitmess.com. This is just something that I think a lot of people are, are trying to come to terms with because it is so ingrained in our culture. It is just something that is part of everyone's everyday life. And it's so difficult to avoid it once you make the, the decision to do so. So a fascinating conversation with Lisa Boucher. Uh, basically just started out asking her about how she got to this point in her life. Growing up with an alcoholic mother and just a brief, you know, give people a, a really brief background for her. She's a registered nurse. My father's a businessman and it looks normal from the outside. 
And my mother's addiction started when I was very, very young, probably as a baby. She started taking Valium prescribed by a doctor. And people forget that Valium was the pharmaceutical company's first billion-dollar drug. So that's what the B. So she got addicted, and then it segued into alcohol. She was at first a very social, I guess in quotes, kind of drinker. But alcohol did. I mean, she'd have a few drinks and get probably drunker than normal people would on two. So already she had that sensitivity there to alcohol, but then her she ended up hitting a very, very low bottom, became unemployable. She was unable to function. I, some of my earliest childhood memories are of her passed out on the couch or the floor and us kids um, like opening her eyes going, mom, get up, get, you know, she was just out of it. So very sad. And then she had the accident that finally catapulted her into rehab. But prior to that, she was trying to find help seeing doctors and psychiatrists and therapists. And they all, for 25 years, misdiagnosed her as bipolar, manic depressive. Instead of saying, hey, this is, we're dealing with an alcoholic. She needs to stop drinking, get off the benzos and go to rehab. But nobody ever did that. So fast forward, after her accident, then my drinking, I started drinking at 12 years old. You know, you're growing up in complete, utter chaos. Um, I just remember feeling a lot of fear as a child. My father was a rageaholic, a control freak, probably because he was trying to micromanage my mother's alcoholism. And we know what a beast that is and how impossible that is. So it was just really had a negative impact on the entire family. And so I started drinking at 12, not a lot, though, had older sisters, that kind of thing. It was escalating. So in my early 20s, my mother finally sobers up. And then somewhere in my mid-20s, she starts to notice that my drinking is escalating and picking up. And she started to, I, I started to see the change in her. My mother ended up after rehab going into 12-step program, and she was like, morphing into this amazing woman um, and just how brilliant she really was and articulate and she began helping so many people. So I'm watching this, you know, and comparing it to like, wow, for my whole life, I did not have really a mother in, in many ways. She was there in body, but mind and spirit were gone. And so when she started to mentioned things about my drinking, instead of getting defensive, like so many people do, I chose to kind of listen to her. Now, I didn't sober up right away. I mean, she was probably chirping for a couple years, but she had planted some seeds. I knew I was drinking more. I knew my life, you know, I'd been in and out of college for a decade, that kind of thing. But it still looks, when you're in your 20s, you can get away with a lot of not being settled and drinking and partying and all of that. But I just knew in my gut that the alcohol was causing my behavior to change, my moods to change very labile. I couldn't really predict, am I going to rip your head off with some verbal tirade or am I just going to dissolve into a fit of tears? It was that kind of thing. And that's just really not my baseline personality. I'm pretty even keel. Don't get too upset. So um, that was just really starting to bother me. 
um, a lot. And then my husband had mentioned things. And so I ended up going to 12-step programs myself. And that's how I quit drinking when I was, uh, yeah, my late 20s. I was like, okay, this is not going to get any better for me. I just knew, I guess intuitively knew in the marrow of my bones, if I didn't quit, I was going to end up like my mother. And I didn't want to do that. It, it sounds like you didn't have to hit a rock bottom. There, there were just enough warning signs that, that steered you on the right path. Exactly. I didn't. And that's why I, that's what I talk about in Raising the Bottom. And that is really my message around this, because there's just so much out there with, you know, the opioid epidemic and these horrible people, you know, they're dying, they're overdosing, all of these catastrophic things that are going on. And my whole message is, hey, we don't have to go to these low bottoms. I had, all we have to do is educate. And then people can decide for themselves. And, you know, I said the one thing that is life-changing is to be honest with ourselves. That That is all we need to change our life. But so many, you know, they say alcoholism or addiction is a disease of denial. And I just decided instead of denying and fighting it, and I could have went and drank probably for another 15, 20 years and had a very common trajectory of probably married two or three times, probably children that were not done as well as maybe my sons did. They both went on to become Division One athletes. They graduated school. One is now married. You know, so they had a, a better path than if they were raised by a mom who was drinking. Um, they might have not made it in the sports world because that takes you – you can't really excel and find your potential when you're trying to survive in an environment like I was in child. You're just trying to survive and cope. So how can anyone really find your their potential in that environment? And I think parents kind of miss that piece there. Like their kids might look like they're functioning and doing okay, but are they really meeting their potential if they're having if they have a lot of anger and resentment because of the parents' behavior and drinking and marriages and social life and going out constantly and you know what I'm saying, that kind of thing. There, yeah. So there is like this whole big picture that a lot of people miss. And we need to talk about it more. What does early alcoholism look like? You know, what are some of the signs? When you're sitting at your desk in the middle of the day and you're thinking about what you're going to drink or where you're going to stop to have drinks or what bottle of wine you're going to buy, or maybe I can't go to that store because I've already been there four times this week. i got to drive a few miles out of my way. I'll go to that store. When you're doing that, you're already in trouble with alcohol. But that's where so many people can still justify it. You know what I'm saying? Oh, for sure. I wanted to touch on the childhood stuff because that was, as I mentioned, there was a lot of things that, that really resonated with me and, and sort of reignited some some memories and some feelings. Uh, I recently went to a retreat uh, completely unrelated to any of this, but but in the process of, of the work that I was doing, uh, really discovered how most of my life, I mean, I'm 43, the vast majority of my life I have tried to hide um and to a point where I was uh, much a much heavier version of myself than I am now, uh, tried to hide behind alcohol, tried to hide behind other drugs, um, just have spent most of my life trying to not be seen. And I had this sort of epiphany over the over this weekend retreat where I realized that's not truly what I want. I want to be seen. I want to be uh, acknowledged in one way or another. 
And there was something about your description. And I don't know how much of it was me inferring it on in the situation or what I was getting off the pages, but you were describing something that made me think of hiding as a child from fighting parents who were fighting probably because of or over alcohol. Um, and I really realized how much that uh, sort of shaped my personality and my and my need to hide. Is that something that you also felt, or have you heard that from other people that have gone through similar oh, things? Oh, God, yes. I mean, that makes absolute sense. If you're, like, again, you know, you're in these toxic environments, alcohol-fueled homes, and they're toxic. And so to keep the peace, children will take any number of, Maybe for you, like you said, you just, it was just easier to just kind of stay small and not be seen and, and hide where others might act out badly. I know I talk about my brother in the book. He was the opposite. He was like, they diagnosed him with ADHD and he was just a, a terror, just running around, just destroying everything in sight. He was, he was wanting attention is what he was wanting. So kids will manifest behaviors because of of the environment and it's not uncommon for um a number of things and when you're a parent who's drinking you're not picking up that your child is feeling that way and needs you know help maybe they're a little on the shy side or maybe just naturally they have a predisposition to that but when you're a sane and sober parent you can parent to bring and nurture your child in ways to help them through these little personality quirks. But when we're raised in these environments that are toxic, I don't really remember, you know, feeling that I wanted to be small. I just remember feeling scared. I was always scared. So did I keep to myself more? I know I it, I talk in my book about my horse. That was rather life-saving for me. That gave me a very healthy out. And I do believe in my heart that I would have been a, an addict at 13 years old if I didn't have that horse. But it gave me the love I wasn't getting at home. It gave me a, a place that I still really resonate in nature, animals. I love that environment. So I had a healthy environment that took me out of that toxic. But what do you do if you're a kid and you don't have a healthy outlet to get away from that. You internalize these emotions. And then like you said, Jeremy, maybe you overeat or people get addicted to relationships that mirror the dysfunction that they were raised in. Unwittingly, we do that because it's comfortable. It might not be healthy, but we gravitate to what's comfortable. So all of these things then come out, bleed out in our adult lives with dysfunctional relationships, addictions, overeating, I mean, possibly some people get addicted to porn, sex. I mean, it doesn't really matter what the addiction is. We're, we're self-medicating troublesome feelings and emotions that we never worked through. That's why most people turn to addiction is because of feelings. It has very little to do with the actual drinking, drugging. It's the escape. And, you know, we like the effect of not feeling our feelings that are painful. That was something uh, about a year ago, one of our first episodes, we spoke with uh, an author. His name's Johan Hari. Are you familiar with his work? 
Um, no, I'm he, not. He wrote a book called Lost Connections, and he basically describes that addiction, uh, the cause of addiction is a, a lack of connection. It's, it's Oh, I am familiar then. Yes, yeah. I have heard of that. And I believe he's, yes. I mean, we, we, and that's why in recovery, it really helps to have connections, sober friends, so that you don't feel so alone. And, you know, they say for recovery to take hold, we have to treat bio, psycho, social, and spiritual. So the social part would be having a network, and that is why there's many recovery ways, celebrate recovery, smart recovery, the 12, but all of them really are centralized around the 12 steps. It's just some are more spiritual than others. Uh, celebrate is more religious. Smart is not religious. You know, it doesn't matter, but what, it, what these programs do is they give people a sober community and friendships. Um, you know, I would say most of my friends are in recovery, not all of them. I still have some friends that from my old life, but those are the people that never really drank heavily. And my hard drinking buddies, that's pretty much just what they are, is drinking buddies. And if I'd see them out, we'd be cordial, we'd say hey and catch up, but they're not someone I'm going to keep in conscious contact with because we really have nothing in common anymore. I wanted to ask you about the, that relationship with the people that you used to drink with. I have friends that that was very much uh, what kept us, I wouldn't say what kept us together, but that was where we found a common bond as we would go out drinking. And when I decided that's not who I am anymore, there was almost like a like a mourning from them and, and how and they felt like they they'd really lost I don't know about a friend, but they lost something. They lost that connection. And that that was difficult to navigate, trying to figure out how do I now relate to this person when that when drinking was the central thing that we bonded over. Well, you know, the 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 blunt answer is sometimes we don't. Um, the, the people that we, I only socialize with because of the drinking thing, they have fallen by the wayside because I'm not going to, I'm around alcohol, alcohol at the time. My husband still drinks. When we were raising our sons, we were around a lot of people that drank, but I didn't have close connections with these people. It was mostly because I was thrown into this because of your kids and you get to know the parents and whatnot. And when our sons graduated from high school, it was very interesting how these so-called friends, most of them went away. But here again, if I see them out or whatever, you know, we'll chit-chat, we'll catch up, we we'll see each other on Facebook. But I don't hang out with them because alcohol is just too big a part of their life and we have nothing really in common. I found other things to do, like write books and go back to school a couple times and do things with my children and do things with, um, you know, sober book clubs and do things with sober friends. And my husband and I like to travel. So I do things, but it's just, you know, those drinking buddies, that was the only thing. And, and you're right, there is a grieving process when somebody gets sober. And I'm glad you brought that up because I don't think that's talked about enough, that it's okay to have this, we're grieving a best friend, alcohol, 
So that, that hit me hard. I mean, I wonder why I was so weepy in that when I grew up. Well, I was grieving. I mean, alcohol had been my friend and confidant and uh, security blanket for a good number of years. And I was kicking it to the curb. So that was upsetting, giving up those friendships. And I didn't do it abruptly. I mean, I did try to maintain some of those ties. But what I found is as I got healthier, I didn't really want to maintain those ties because I saw how sick some of it really was and how self-destructive a lot of it really was. And it wasn't that I don't like those people, but I just don't want to live that unhealthy lifestyle. And you get to where you love yourself enough that it's like, I deserve, why am I going to punish myself around all this boozing and just to maintain connections that are doing nothing for me? And so there was a point where I just kind of gave myself permission to let them go. And I started a whole new life of you know, sober ties. But like I said, some of those friends, like we still get invitations to their kids' weddings and things like that because we were, or I was a part of their life. Our families meshed together when we were raising our kids. So that's how that all has landed. And I'm fine with it. It's so interesting how damaging uh, alcohol and alcoholism is to so, so many people. Uh, and yet it's one of the most, uh, I, I don't know, celebrated uh, things in our culture to bring people together. It's, you know, yeah, it, you compare that to opioids, yeah. to smoking, to to anything. If If the kind of damage that alcohol does was being done by opioids, the way that we have reacted to the opioid crisis would be, would would bail in comparison to what is happening now. It's... Well, but Jeremy, okay, so another another great point that you brought up. So it is doing. So let me just give you some stats. Last year, 72,000 people died from opioids. However, last year, 88,000 people died from alcohol. Alcohol is still the most widely abused drug. It goes alcohol, then heroin. What's interesting, though, and is, I mean, that's every... that's death. But consider the, the social impact of uh, alcoholic mothers and fathers and yeah. the, the cycle that it creates through generation after generation. That, I think, is far more alarming to me than death because death happens to the person that did it to themselves. And, yes, it impacts the others around them. But it's it's just even the, the, the vaping crisis that's going on right now. A few hundred people have died, and you would think yeah. that we were all about to be wiped out by the plague. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, it's because that big alcohol, they spent $2 billion last year in the United States alone um, peddling their wares, and it is so entrenched and ingrained in our culture, but it is killing more people than the opioids, and like you said, destroying families and all of the social problems, you know, the murders, the lots of rapes. I mean, all these violent crimes. How many of them are alcohol fueled? I'm going to say many, many, many. Here in Dayton, Ohio, the shooter, when we had that mass shooting, I'm sure you heard about it, oh, it was yeah. all over. Um, they found he had alcohol and Xanax on board. The shooter did. So, you know, people don't commit these atrocities most of the time when they're completely sober. Most of the 
affairs that happen don't happen when people are sober. Most of the terrible car accidents don't happen when people are sober. So it just contributes to so much um, carnage. And like you said, in in a plethora of ways, the layers of demise from alcohol, the lost productivity. I know corporate America, $249 billion in lost productivity. And what's so crazy is you go to any like corporate event and the booze is flowing. So like, it makes no sense. Okay. You're pushing the booze, but yet it's costing you $249 billion a year. Does it make any sense? No, it really, there's nothing logical about what we do as a culture, but it continues to happen. And I I don't really get it. There was a onesie. Somebody sent me a picture of a little baby onesie and it said, now that my mommy can drink again, she's so much more fun. (laughs) You've got to be kidding me. Like, this is sad that people crack up and think this stuff is funny. And some baby is probably wearing that onesie right now. Like, God help us. That's just sad. Well, you know, and, and I get it for people like, like my wife, she, she is perfectly capable of having a drink or not. She does not drink heavily. She can have a glass of wine with dinner and it's, and it's no thing. I, I would like to think that I'm that kind of person, but I know that one beer is usually three, which is usually five or six. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and I never really considered myself an alcoholic, but the more time away from it that I have, uh, the more I sort of see it clearly because I keep, I keep wrestling with, am I the kind of person that could have a drink? And the fact that I have to keep asking myself and doubt it sort of tells me that I'm probably not. Oh, interesting. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, it is hard when, um, you know, it sounds like you had a very high bottom, nothing tragic happened, but you just started to see it. And it is hard when, you know, I talk about this high bottom and I love that I had a high bottom, but I'd be lying if I told you it was, you know, easy to say, okay, I'm done drinking. I did make up my mind. I wanted to quit, but I was very angry about it. And I had to get through that. And then there are times where you think, okay, I've been sober 30 years. Wow. I wasn't, and I'm entrenched with addicts and alcoholics. So I know that I didn't do a lot of the things that others have done. And so that little disease part of my brain will say, well, yeah, you weren't as bad. And, you know, maybe, but I know deep down, because I know, and I understand addiction, it is a progressive disease. Just because if you found that you don't have an off switch, just because maybe you were able to stop at seven beers, or six beers, but you keep going, it would get to where you wouldn't be able to stop because that is the nature of addiction. And that really tripped me up for a long time because I would sit there comparing, going, well, I didn't drink every day. I could walk out of the bar and leave half a drink. Um, How can I be an alcoholic? And then I realized, though, here's what defines an alcoholic. Can you predict always what you will do when you start drinking. Can you have two drinks and be done? And if you can do that the rest of your life, two drinks and walk away and be done, you're probably not an alcoholic. But an alcoholic might be able to do that for a month, a week, maybe even six months, but the day will come where they will have no control whatsoever and then 
that is more indicative of an alcoholic than quantity, than frequency. It's the inability to 100% predict what you will do once you start drinking alcohol. My my therapist described it as uh, basically something to the effect of people who are have a normal relationship with alcohol don't really think about it. They go to dinner and, oh, right. yeah, sure, I'll have a glass of wine. The rest of us are thinking, is the place we're going, does it have alcohol? How much can I have? Will I be able to drive? Like the amount of time you spend thinking about exactly. that is, is sort of the, the biggest red flag. I do want to talk about some, uh, I guess, some takeaways, because I would imagine that there are plenty of people who drink that are listening to this and are thinking, oh, maybe, maybe I should stop. Maybe I should walk away. And this is a really tough time of year to do it because there's so many holiday parties, family gatherings, that sort of thing uh, that that lend themselves to free flowing booze. And that's a really hard thing to say no to um, when when that's something that you enjoy. So I, I guess, are there some takeaways that you hope people will get from from this conversation, from your book that will sort of help them uh, figure out what is best for them in terms of moving forward with their with their alcohol uh, use? Yeah, um, I think to segue on what you just said, when you have these conversations in your mind and you're preoccupied with alcohol, that is an early warning sign that your relationship with alcohol is not normal. So you can choose to address it and nip it all in the bud or continue to practice. Or if you're someone suffering with depression, I always encourage people, instead of running to the doctor and taking all these antidepressants and getting more medication, if you're depressed, stop drinking because alcohol is a depressant. And so if that thought horrifies you, then there is your problem. You know right already you don't really need anyone to diagnose you. Your problem is more alcohol than it is depression, if that makes sense. Um, if you find that you have difficulty in your relationships, in your marriage, with your children, ask yourself, Is am I drinking? Is alcohol in every conversation? And then I react differently than I would when I'm sober. Ask yourself, am I only doing drinking activities? Or do I have any hobbies that don't revolve around alcohol. That's another tall tale sign. I know when I got sober, I had to like, there was a period there where I was like, oh my gosh, like, what do you do when you're not in the bar? I wasted a lot of hours in a bar. I loved that environment. I was not a closet drinker at home. But then when you stop drinking, you realize, and then it turns into sadness later on when I realized how much how precious time really is, and I wasted quite a bit of it drinking and sitting in bars doing absolutely nothing productive um, and not, not contributing anything worthwhile to my health, my family, I mean, really anything. So that kind of thing. So those are some takeaways where you can ask yourself, am I treading into this danger zone? If you find yourself that you can't stop when you start or you get drunk when you don't mean to too many times, or the people you are around, everybody is drinking heavily. This can make somebody else's, you know, my drinking can then look more normal. So I think a lot of alcoholics do that or people that are 
getting into the danger zone with alcohol, they tend to switch friend groups and start hanging with people that drink more heavily so that their drinking doesn't look abnormal. Mm-hmm. All of these little things that we do, these little mental twists and behaviors, they are red flags that, that drinking is taking over our lives and it can happen. And then the last thing is if you see any sort of progression, like I was talking about earlier, if you used to be someone who who only drank on Saturday night and now you're drinking Wednesday through Saturday, well, that's a progression. And that's a warning that you're could very easily segue into a full-blown alcohol problem at some point. And it's just much easier to catch it, slow it down, address it while it's early. And if you find that you can't stop, then get help. I mean, there's no shame in getting help. And this drives me crazy because people will have no shame being drunk in public, slurring their words, having embarrassing themselves in front of their children. Um, And then they're embarrassed to be in recovery because, oh, my God, I don't want people to know I'm an alcoholic. Well, my God, everybody knows. (laughs) You are always the last one. Everybody (laughs) already knows. It's like this is how we think, though, that like, oh, my gosh, I mean, I get it, but that right there is is how you could diagnose yourself if you're worried about everybody's going to think you're an alcoholic. Believe me, they already know you are. That's so funny. Again, the book, Raising the Bottom, Making Mindful Choices in a Drinking Culture. It's written by Lisa Boucher. Fascinating conversation. I'm uh, really glad that we got to talk to her, and you can get a, a link to buy that book on our website, thefitmess.com. Challenge time, right? So what did we do last week? Last week, we challenged – you challenged me, I believe. I did. I challenged you to uh, essentially just take things one day at a time and, uh, you know – with all the stuff that's going on in life, just take it one day at a time. And that's really, you know, it's so interesting that uh, that that was the challenge because I've had to do that even down to one step at a time. There, Today, coming to work, I just had to focus on left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. There's times when I have to break it down that small. So so that was a well-timed challenge because I definitely that's where I'm at is uh, just needing to uh, to eat the elephant one bite at a time and and uh, so that was a well-timed challenge. Yeah, I was going to say you you made it to today, so obviously you've been taking it one day at a time, but it's um yeah, just wrapping your head around the fact that it's one day at a time is kind of half the battle. Um the other 50% is trudging through the day. Yeah. But it's it's tough, right? it, especially when you can't drink. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. Uh, that makes the end of the day so much more pleasurable. Right? Uh, it's uh, the, the crossing the finish line. Uh, okay, new challenge. Uh, sort of in the same vein with everything that's going on. You know, I don't know what it's like at your house, but Christmas means a lot of time in the car, a lot of driving to and from grandmas and grandpas and other grandmas and other grandpas and. Uh, And, you know, trying to make sure that everybody has a a Merry Christmas while you're spending most of it in the car. Uh, So for me, I'm 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 challenging myself, uh, but also you to just have patience and still just, you know, take it one event at a time, one mile at a time, whatever it is. 
just and try to enjoy it because uh you know i mentioned that i, that I have a sick friend and, and i just keep thinking about uh where where he's at in his journey and um we only get so many of these so yeah so try to enjoy it and, and take it uh you know one day at a time still yep i'm i'm gonna take that challenge because i can't i have to because right before we started recording i popped open our amazon account which my wife and i share and you know we we generally speaking we buy most of our gifts through amazon and um, she put all of the gifts for all the cousins for all for for our kid for everyone we need to buy a gift for was in our amazon cart and the you know, I was just going on to buy one, you know, $17 thing <laughs> right. and went to the cart and to check out and it was over $500. Oh, and I was like, oh, no. Oh. So one, one step at a time. <laughs> one, one, oh. uh, one buy now at a time. <laughs> well, actually the next conversation is going to be, who's this for? Right. What's this for? Do we need to get this for this person? No, I didn't think so. Do we really like this person that much? No. We I like, we like so that either. person more like twelve ninety nine. Yeah. <laughs> Under 20, please. Oh, that's funny. All right. Well, let's get out of here. Um, I'm, I've got a sneaking hunch that this is probably our last show for the year, uh, just because it's been so difficult to get them on the calendar. So if that's the case, uh, I hope the year has been good to you and uh, a happy new year. Merry Christmas, whatever you're celebrating. And uh, we will most likely see you in the new year with a new episode at thefitmess.com. See everyone. Bye. We know this podcast is amazing and does not seem to lack anything, but we still need a legal disclaimer. Jeremy and Zach are not doctors. They don't play them on TV. And even if they did play them on TV, they would be really bad at it. Please consult your physician prior to implementing any changes that you heard on this podcast. The listener assumes that Jeremy and Zach do not know what they're talking about and that you'll do your own research on the topics talked about in this podcast.